Romans 9, 14 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Take heart, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. That all those who fear the Lord can say with a full heart, the loving kindness of the Lord endures forever. Through every trial, through every hardship, through every sorrow, and through every joy, Your loving kindness is woven through it all. Lord, I love the declaration of your psalm, Psalm 145, declaring that you are good to all and your mercies are over all of your works. There's nothing we will experience in this life in which we cannot find an expression of your mercy towards us. Lord, I pray that we would see that, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that this morning you would uh, give us hearts to receive if we do not have them already. And those of us who have been given the grace of a new heart by your spirit and through the gospel, Or that you would revive us this morning. That you would awaken our hearts to a greater sense of your glory and your grace. Father, be with us as we consider these questions on election. And uh, help us, Lord. May they be beneficial to our souls. And uh, stabilize us in the faith. Lord, we ask for your grace and your mercy to be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. A um, couple things here at the beginning. Uh, one, thank you for everyone who was praying for us and our family. It was a kind of a long week, uh, 13 hours down and 13 hours back and a day full of a funeral and family gathering and stuff on Wednesday. So that was uh, a busy week with my grandma passing um, 
the, the Lord uh, did give grace, I believe, for uh, his name to be honored at her funeral. So thank you for praying for that. Um, so that's one thing. Um, another thing is I got a number of resources that I want to recommend to you all on this, these topics we've been discussing, or at least the sovereignty of God and election and all the questions that are relating to, to that issue. Number one on my list is uh, James Montgomery Boyce and Philip Graham Ryken. Philip Graham Ryken actually didn't write the majority of this. He only had to fill in what was lacking after James Montgomery Boyce passed away. <laughs> so um, most of this is Boyce, and uh, this is called The Doctrines of Grace. It was the first book I read uh, presenting uh, much of the theology that I'm uh, discussing in the pulpit the last few weeks on election and God's sovereignty. It's a very helpful, very approachable book, and I would highly recommend this. So The Doctrines of Grace, James Montgomery Boyce and Philip Graham Ryken, Rediscovering the Evangelical Gospel. And I think that's really important to understand that what I'm teaching is the historical, evangelical, reformed expression of the gospel as we find it in the scriptures. Another one that I would highly recommend is James White's The Potter's Freedom. You know, the, the ultimate debate on election and God's sovereignty, most of the time it focuses on man's freedom, but the question really is about God's freedom. Does the potter not have right or authority over the clay to do whatever he wants with the clay? Yes, he does. This book is an excellent treatment of that. The Potter's Freedom, James White. Um, another one, J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. We're going to be just briefly talking about why evangelize today. If, uh, or we're going to talk about today briefly why evangelize if God is sovereign and election is true. So J.I. Packer has done a, uh, given a wonderful treatment of that, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Um, believe it or not, my favorite book on this is John Calvin, The Bondage and Liberation of the Will. The Bondage and Liberation of the Will. Highly recommend this. This is a written debate with a guy named uh, Figius. Love saying his name. Um, but it's a, a defense of the orthodox doctrine of human choice against Figius. So uh, the orthodox doctrine of human choice. Very, very excellent book. All right, and then one more. So John Calvin, The Bondage and Liberation of the Will. I can tell I've already, I'm already putting some of you to sleep. You're, you're like, come on. <laughs> uh, last one that I'll recommend on this topic is uh, Sam Waldron. He is a seminary president of the seminary where I attend uh, currently. Um, this book is called the, uh, the Crux of the Free Offer of the Gospel. The Crux of the Free Offer of the Gospel. And basically, it's a defense of how is it that God can freely offer the gospel to the entire world of sinners if he has not truly chosen to save the entire world of sinners? How can it be a genuine offer if it's being given to someone who is not chosen? That's this book, and it's an excellent treatment. It's a little academic at times, but I think it's, I think it's very helpful. So I'd recommend those for those of you, these books for those of you who want to do a little more digging on this, on this topic. 
All right, so uh, this morning we did have the scripture reading coming from Romans chapter 9. That's not because I'm going to be walking exegetically through Romans chapter 9. We've already done some of that in the previous sermons dealing with this question of election. Um, I just wanted that passage read so that it's out in the open. (laughs) And we're all aware of what Paul says to us in Romans chapter 9. On this issue of election, is there injustice in God? Absolutely not. Because God has the right and the authority to have mercy on whom he wants, and he has the right and the authority to harden whomever he wants in their sin. Well, how can he find fault for who resists his will? Well, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That is the Spirit's definitive treatment and answer of this issue of election and man's responsibility and accountability in relation to God's sovereignty. But I thought it would be helpful to have that read. Now, we're continuing on in our mini-series, really is what this has become, a mini-series titled uh, Questions on Election. My hope is that today will be the last last, uh, sermon on this. Uh, This was sparked, as you know, by Jesus' teaching in John chapter 6, where he speaks of a certain group of people who have been given to him by the Father, a group of people who, because they were given, will come. He speaks of this group of people who have been drawn to him by the Father, or who will be drawn to him by the Father. This group of people is also taught by the Father so that they come to Christ. So anyone who comes to Christ, that is is a proof and an evidence that the Father is teaching that person. If someone does not come to Christ, that is evidence that that person is not being taught by the Father. Um, And then John 6.65, Jesus says, uh, this group of people, to them it has been granted to come to Christ. No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. So what Jesus teaches this crowd in John 6 clearly thrust upon us the issue of election and the issue of God's sovereignty and salvation. And that has brought up a number of questions that we're seeking to discuss and answer biblically together. Now, we approach these questions, just as a reminder, we approach these questions recognizing, first of all, that God has not given us all the answers to all the questions that we have. We have many questions in our minds and hearts relating to this issue that God has chosen not to answer for us, at least not this side of eternity. And this is a test. Will we submit to his word and trust in his character in relation to this issue, or will we continue to trust our own reasoning abilities and our own logic to work this issue out? When you do that, you go in one of two erroneous ways. You go into hyper-Calvinism, or you go into Arminianism. But you don't stay in the biblical path, which is right in the middle in between those two extremes. So we come to these questions recognizing that God has not given us all the answers that we might want, but we also come to, this, uh, come to these questions acknowledging that God does not have to give us those answers because He is not accountable to us. When we come to the Lord in relation to these questions, we come acknowledging and bowing before God that He is sovereign and we are not. He is not accountable to us. We are accountable to Him. But still, even acknowledging those two things, we're still asking honest questions and we're desiring to find biblical answers to those questions. So that's what we're doing, continuing to do this morning. 
Now, last week we looked at two of those questions, one being, how is election fair? And the other being, what about free will? So if you weren't here last week and you would like to know how we treated those two questions, you can go listen to the sermon from last week. We looked at how is election fair and what about free will? Does election and God's sovereignty violate human freedom, free will? Just in summary, election is fair because God doesn't owe any sinner salvation. That's why election can be fair, because God doesn't owe salvation to anyone. It's His to give as He wills. He can extend that mercy according to His own desire. He doesn't owe it to anyone, and no one has a claim on God that would demand that He give them salvation. Right? Amen? Amen. Right? This is Bodie Bauckham. Can't say amen. You better say ouch. Right? If you can't agree with that, then something's wrong with your heart. If you can't agree that God does not owe every single human being on the face of the planet salvation, if you can't agree with that, something's wrong with you. And you need to have your mind re, uh, renewed in the Scriptures. You need to have your heart recalibrated so that it feels and thinks the way that God feels and thinks about this topic. So how is election fair? Well, it's fair because God doesn't owe anyone salvation. And if He chooses to give some salvation, He has not wronged them. And if He chooses not to give salvation to others, He has not wronged them. He gives them what they deserve in the latter case. And in the former, He gives them what they don't deserve. His free, undeserved grace and mercy. What about free will? Well, in summary, our free will is not violated by God's sovereignty and election and salvation because everyone continues freely to choose what they want to do. The the sinner's free will is not violated. The elect person's free will is not violated. There's there's no violation of of the creaturely freedom that God has given to each individual person. They operate according to what they desire. The sinner continues to be free to do what the sinner wants to do. And what is that? Sin and rebel against God. Serve the lust of the flesh. Be autonomous. Try and uh, break God and and His anointed, break their, their bonds apart and cast their fetters from them. That's what the sinner loves to do. And the elect have their wills liberated so that they are finally free to freely choose God. This is what Joel Beakey said. I love love how he put this in uh, Reform Systematic Theology. This is volume one, page 1010. And no, I've only read about half of that, so I've not read a thousand pages of that yet. But uh, Joel Beakey said, Sovereign grace does not destroy the free choice of the will, but purifies the will to freely choose God. That's what happens in regeneration. When God gives you that new heart with new desires, you are finally set free from your enslavement to the lust of the flesh and your enslavement to sin, and you are finally liberated so that you can love and serve and obey God in faith, freely and willfully. You remember in uh, the uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession, when God converts a sinner and translates him into a state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage in sin, and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. That's what happens in salvation. That's not a violation of free will. That's a liberation of the will of man so that it can be used rightly. 
So all that was last week. Today what we're going to do is get to some other important questions that have come up, and hopefully we're going to finish them. Um, I sure hope we finish them, because if we don't, it's going to be really awkward next week. Uh, have to come up with more questions. You're like, no, please don't do that. All right, so the, th the third question that we want to look at is the idea relating to this idea of liberating the will. Relating to that idea of liberating the will and enabling us freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good, that leads to a third question, which is, how is God's sovereignty and election not a denial of human responsibility? Very close, very closely related to the second question, but a little different. How is election and God's sovereignty not a denial of human responsibility? Or another way to, that some like to put this, how does election and God's sovereignty not lead to what is called fatalism or fatalistic determinism? If you want those, those terms, you might hear a man such as uh, Leighton Flowers on a, on a podcast. If you don't know who that is, I would not recommend that you listen to him. Um, who, what's that? Choice Meats. Yes. Is that his podcast? Okay, it's something else. I don't get it. That's okay. That's all right. Choice meets, whatever that is. Um, but if you, if you listen to Leighton Flowers, uh, you, you can... Okay, when, let me just put it this way. When I listen to Leighton Flowers, what I can tell is that he has no idea what he's talking about. I don't mean to be disrespectful to him, but I do mean to say that when he treats what I believe to be what the Scriptures say, he shows his ignorance of what we actually believe or what we teach in Reformed theology. So anyway, if you hear someone like that or, or choice meats, what, sounds like a meat market, I don't know, but uh, whatever that is, they might, they might uh, call this fatalism. Wayne Grudem has a good definition of fatalism. I thought it would be helpful to share this with you. Fatalism is a system in which human choices and human decisions make no real difference because things will turn out as they have been previously ordained. And you can understand the connection between fatalism and God's sovereignty. Well, if God has decreed all things whatsoever comes to pass, right, that's uh, 1689, chapter 3, paragraph 1. If God has ordained all things whatsoever comes to pass, then, then what difference could our decisions and our choices actually make? Because it's all going to pan out the way God has determined for it to pan out anyway. Determinism. Fatalistic determinism. Human choices and decisions don't matter. God has determined the way things will come about. So in other words, the question is, if God is sovereign and in control over salvation, and ultimately, whatever He has sovereignly decreed or decided to take place will inevitably happen. If that's true, if what God has decided to take place will inevitably happen then how can our choices and our decisions have any real meaning or significance? Right? It's like a que sera, sera. What will be, will be, except it's what God has decided will be, will be. And our decisions don't matter. How then, if, if that's true, if it's ultimately up to God's will, how then can human choices and even human responsibility be upheld as true? in the face of God's sovereignty and election. There's an assumption in this question that you need to make sure that you understand. 
The assumption in this question is that these two things cannot belong together. That you cannot have God as absolutely sovereign and man as responsible and accountable. You cannot have those two things. This position would say God must be ultimately and absolutely sovereign in all things to the exclusion of human responsibility or human beings must be responsible and culpable and have enough power of will to make decisions to the exclusion of God's absolute sovereignty. And what is that? That's nothing other than the contrast between hyper-Calvinism and Arminianism, right? It just keeps coming back to this. And we're going to come up to, we're going to see this again. So this position has an assumption, an underlying assumption that needs to be tested. They say God can't be sovereign like this and still have man be accountable and responsible. It's not possible. But let me start by asking a question. In answering that, let me start by asking another question. Isn't this the exact issue that's brought up in Romans 9? Romans 9, verses 18 and 19. God gives mercy to who? To whomever He wills. And He hardens in sin whom? Who, whom? Whom? Who? Who? Whom? Whom does He harden, harden in their sin? Whoever He wills. Now that automatically makes us ask, doesn't it? It makes us ask, well, why then does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? If, it's, if, if, if those who come to mercy, ultimately it's because of God willed to give them mercy, and those who don't come to saving mercy in the gospel, ultimately it's, it comes down to God choosing to harden that person in his or her sin, then, then how in the world could they be held accountable for choosing to come or not choosing to come? If it's up to God's will, how can they be responsible? You know the Spirit's definitive answer to that. said it multiple times. Verse 20, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to its molder, Why did you make me like this? In other words, that question begins with the wrong assumption. It's not starting from the position of, of, of counting as true and accurate what God declares to be reality. God declares in His Word absolute reality. He is ultimately sovereign, and you are responsible. That question uh, fails to recognize the legitimacy of what God has said to us in His Word. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? However, there's something else to remember when we're seeking to deal with this question about what Scripture teaches us, and that's in relation to the, the sovereignty of God and our responsibility before Him. What we have to realize and what Scripture teaches us is that these two things are not at odds with each other, but actually work together in perfect harmony. The sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. It's like what someone asked Charles Spurgeon once, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility? You know what his answer was to that? Who knows it? You can't, you don't have to reconcile friends. How do you reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility? Spurgeon said, you don't have to reconcile friends. 
In other words, they're not enemies of each other. They don't need to be reconciled. They're, 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 they work together in harmony. How that works, we don't understand. But the fact that that is true is what Scripture tells us. We don't have to understand how it works. We just have to believe it. You know, God will cause His sovereign purpose to come to pass, and nothing in all of creation will hinder Him from accomplishing all that He has determined to do. You agree with that? Amen. Because it's, it's God who is working all things after the counsel of His will. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Right? Uh, Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases... That is what he does, both in the heavens above and on the earth and in the seas. God does whatever God wants to do, and nothing and no one will ever thwart him or hinder him from accomplishing his will. But if we let that reality drive us into an attitude of passivity or into an attitude of hyper-Calvinism, then we have missed a vital teaching of Scripture. Yes, God will accomplish all of His holy will, but He chooses, the Scriptures tell us that He chooses to do that through the use of means. So that God has an ordained will that He is bringing to pass through His creation, but the manner in which He's going to bring it to pass is through the use of secondary means. Secondary causes. Now those means, that involves real human beings making real decisions that have real consequences. That is the wisdom of God revealed in the world that He has established. That that His sovereignty works at all times and in all things to the accomplishment of His decreed and predetermined ends. But at the same time, He does that in such a way, to quote the 1689, He does that in such a way that that God has decreed in Himself all, from all eternity unchangeably whatsoever comes to pass. Everything that comes to pass, God has decreed that that would come to pass. But He has done that in such a way that one, God is not the author of sin, nor does He have any fellowship with those in sin. God is, uh, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. I do have these on slides, Hans. 1689, uh, 3, 1, there it is. God has decreed all things whatsoever comes to pass, but He's done it in such a way that, number one, He's not the author of sin, nor does He have fellowship with anyone who is in sin. Number two, violence is not offered to the will of the creature. So even though God has determined everything whatsoever comes, that, that will come to pass, He has decreed that that would come to pass, He's done it in such a way that the creature's will has not been violated. And number three, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of secondary causes taken away, but rather established. In other words, in other words, God has created the world in such a way that his sovereignly predetermined purposes and ends are worked out through the free decisions of his creatures. And the framers of this confession wrote this this way because of what they saw in the Scriptures. See, the Scriptures never present these two realities as being in conflict with each other. Therefore, we should not think of them as being in conflict with each other 
either. One of the clearest passages discussing this reality in the context of salvation is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Grant brought this up in Sunday school this morning. I'm sure you're familiar with these verses, but, but just hear again what they say. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, the Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul, My beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Now take note of that. Command. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God's at work in you, both to do and to will of His good pleasure. Now you see that. Here in, this, in these verses, we are called to work. That is, we are called to exercise our wills, to use all the means available to us for the salvation of our souls. And that would include prayer, Bible study, meditating upon the Word, disciplining ourselves for the sake of godliness, renewing our minds in the truth of the Gospel. We are to take advantage of all the means that God has appointed for the salvation of sinners. We're to, we're to work those things into our lives. We're to be diligent in doing that. But... We do that only because God is currently working inside of us. Working in us so that we are willing and ready and able to do that which is good and pleasing in His sight. Now, these are some of the clearest verses in the whole Bible that bring together the reality of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Letting them both stand together even in the same sentence. So according to these verses, is it God who is sovereignly, powerfully working out His good pleasure in your life? Or is it you working out obedience to God's will in your life? Which one is it? The, 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 those who charge me with being a fatalistic determinist would, would say it can't be both. But the Scriptures are here making very plain that it is both. Yes, God is sovereignly, powerfully at work in the lives of His people, to, working in them to accomplish His will, sovereignly, powerfully, mightily, bringing it to pass. And yes, it is you working out your salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord. Again, this is Arminianism versus hyper-Calvinism, right? Arminianism says it's all man's will, it's all man's responsibility, it's up to man. Hyper-Calvinism says it's all God's will. It's all God's working to the exclusion of man. Biblical Christianity says it's both. It's God sovereignly working in His elect people, and it's man responding and being responsible to follow through with the Lord's will in their lives. This doctrine is called concurrence, the doctrine of concurrence, if you want to know. It's the cooperation between God and man that in many respects is beyond our ability to comprehend, but is very clearly taught in the Scriptures. So, in other words, you are seeking the Lord, you are seeking to do His will through self-activity, 
God is not a puppet master working in and through you, causing you to do certain things. You are working. You are walking. You are laboring after the truth. You're striving to enter into the gate. You're walking along the narrow way. You are devoting yourself to the will of the Lord day in and day out. And yet at the same time, working beneath and in and through that heartfelt desire and willing obedience is the hand of God. Working within, causing us to will and to want to do the things that are pleasing to the Lord. And we find this all over Scripture. I don't have time. I'm taking longer here already than I intended. But we find this all over Scripture. Uh, you can look at Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Uh, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. If you sow to the flesh, what are you going to reap? You're going to reap corruption, condemnation, judgment. You sow to the Spirit, what are you going to reap? It says here you're going to reap eternal life. Well, that sounds as though it's up to us to determine which, one, which path we're going to take. Are we going to sow to the flesh or are we going to sow to the Spirit? Well, that is human responsibility lifted up there, but you have to go back to Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17 to remember a very important reality before you jump to that conclusion. Galatians 5, 16, and 17 says that we are to walk in the Spirit so that we don't uh, fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. Now let me just point something out here. I don't have time to unpack all of this, but you can walk according to the desires of the Spirit, but you cannot put the desires of the Spirit in your own heart. Who has to put the desires of the Spirit within you so that you can walk according to them? The Spirit of God has to do that. So Galatians 5.25, if you live in the Spirit, let us also, you should also walk in the Spirit. You can't make yourself alive in the Spirit, but you are responsible and accountable to make sure that you are walking in the Spirit if you are one who has been made alive. You see the same thing in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Chapter 6, verse 1, it calls us to press on to maturity, press on to perfection. But in verse 3, it says, and this we will do if God permits you are charged, you are commanded, you are responsible to make sure that you are growing in the faith, that you are making advancement in the gospel of Christ and for the sake of His kingdom, that your own heart is becoming more subject and more filled with the glory of the gospel. But you're only going to do that if God permits you to do that. We see the same thing in prayer, right? God is the one who answers prayer. He sovereignly determines and dictates our, our, our uh, times and seasons, and he provides us with all things that we have that we might enjoy them and use them for the sake of his kingdom. And yet, James chapter 4, verses 2 to 3 tells us you do not have certain things in your life because you did not ask for them. And even when you did ask and you didn't get them, you asked for wrong motives. You asked with wrong motives. Human responsibility right there. So in all these ways, we see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility not being at odds, but actually working together in sweet harmony to accomplish God's will in our lives and in this world. Hopefully that was enough of an answer for you. Number four, question number four. If election, relating to number three, if election is true and God is sovereign over salvation, then why evangelize? Why go preach the gospel to the lost if God has already chosen who will and won't be saved? Well, again, the answer to this is because God has appointed certain means by which his elect will be called unto salvation, hasn't he? 
Just because God has appointed a certain means by which they will come to salvation does not mean that he has not chosen them to come to salvation. And primarily, the means of evangelizing the lost comes down to prayer and preaching the gospel. Right? You remember in Romans chapter 10, verse 14, uh, Paul, after saying that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, he says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? So smack in the middle of one of the clearest discussions of election in Scripture is this statement affirming God's use of means in order to save His elect people. Right? Because Romans 9 and Romans 11 both talk about the elect, the chosen of God. And here in Romans 10, Paul's saying they're not going to be saved unless someone goes out and preaches the gospel to them. God has appointed means unto the salvation of His elect people. You see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So who ultimately was causing the growth and bringing to salvation these people in Corinth? Who was the one who caused them to grow in the faith? Who was the one who brought them to faith to begin with? God did. But what's important to notice is that God chose not to do that apart from Paul planting the seeds and Apollos watering those seeds. It was through the means of preaching the gospel that God brought about the growth. He could have done it another way, but that's not what he chose to do. God has appointed means for the accomplishment of his ends. And when it comes to the salvation of the lost, the Lord uses the preaching of the gospel to sovereignly save them. Now let me ask you, this is totally a parenthesis and an application here, but have you ever wondered why you're not seeing people come to Christ through your ministry in your life? Have you ever asked yourself, Lord, why am I not seeing sinners converted? Why am I not seeing your spirit move with power to bring conviction and salvation to the lost around me, the lost in my family, the lost in my neighborhood? Why don't you save them? Well, let me ask you a couple questions. How much are you preaching the gospel to them? Not just saying the name Jesus or saying, yo, God is so good, and then you count that as witnessing. That's, that's not witnessing. That's not preaching the gospel. The gospel comes as the declarative truth of what Jesus has done to save sinners. And then also comes with the call that sinners are, re are required to respond to. Jesus died for sin. Jesus rose again from the dead. God has made Him king over the universe. And one day He's coming to rule and reign in all the fullness of His glory. And He promises salvation to all who come to Him. What are you required to do with that? Repent of your sin and believe in that good news. When we start preaching that message in its fullness to those who are around us and stop being afraid of how they're going to respond, then we will see the power of God move and bring sinners into His kingdom. But so long as the fear of man is operating in our hearts and hindering us from sharing the truth with our neighbors, we're not going to see that power. Because God saves sinners through the preaching of the gospel. And until we are bold enough to preach the gospel to our culture, we're not going to see the gospel move in power. Uh, amen to that. I'll amen that. I think that that's an actu actually a, a good point, Brother Seth. And I think, I think, I think that, <laughs> man, I think I feel a lot of conviction after you said that. I think... I probably need to go home and pray about that and think about how the Lord wants me to work that truth out in my life a little bit more. 
Uh, praise the Lord, brother Seth. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, you're welcome, brother. Really appreciate you. God uses means to save sinners, and the means he has appointed to save them is prayer and the preaching of the gospel. And this is why Paul can say with utter confidence in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, that despite all the suffering he had to endure in order to preach the gospel, he says he continued to endure everything for the sake of who? Who? For the sake of the elect. Who's he talking about there? The sake of the elect, those whom God has chosen and given to his son for salvation. I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation which is in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. So how are the elect, those who are chosen for salvation, how are they going to obtain that salvation in Christ? Through the preaching of the gospel. That's why Paul endured everything he had to endure for the sake of the gospel, so that in the preaching of the gospel, God would call forth his elect and bring them to glory, uniting them to Christ through faith. So the reason why he was so confident that his sufferings for preaching the gospel were not in vain was exactly because of what Acts 13.48 affirms, that all those who are appointed to eternal life will believe the word. Right? Isn't that what this says? And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. The appointment came first. The belief was an evidence and a proof and, and, a, and a, a manifestation of having been appointed. God appointed them to life. They believed when the gospel was preached. That was the manifestation of their election. This is why John Calvin says that the greatest proof and evidence of election in a person's life is the calling of the gospel that comes upon them. That when the gospel of Jesus comes upon you and you are compelled to turn from your sin and submit to Christ, that is an evidence that you are among the elect. Because you were appointed to eternal life. And those who are appointed to eternal life believe the gospel. Or we can use Jesus' words from John 6. Those who are given to me, what do they do? They come to me. Those who are drawn by the Father, those who are taught by the Father, what do they do? They come to me. Those to whom it has been granted to be saved, what do they do? They come to Jesus. That's the manifestation that you are among the elect. So the Lord uses the preaching of the gospel to call his elect people supernaturally out of this world and unto faith and glory in Christ. And it is their faith in the gospel that ultimately reveals that they are the elect. So we evangelize because that is what God has ordained to be the means of calling his chosen people to salvation in his son. So that's number four. Number five, I'll try to run through these last two briefly. Number five, this one's really important. Not that they're not all important, but this one's really important, really significant. How can election be true if God desires all people to be saved? If God desires all people to be saved, then how could it be true that he's only chosen to save some? Doesn't that seem like a contradiction or a conflict within the heart of God? 
Well, let's start answering that by examining part of that question. Number one, is it true that God desires all people everywhere to be saved? I'm not answering that until you answer it. Is it true that God desires all people everywhere to be saved? Yeah, it seems so. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, I do not take this to mean classes of people. I do think this means all people. And if you want to hear my treatment of that, you can go listen to my sermon from when I preached through 1 Timothy and hear why I believe that. But 1 Timothy 2, 4, it is pleasing to God for His people to pray on behalf of all men, even those who are persecuting them in authority. It's pleasing to God to pray for them that they would come to know the truth because God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. John 3.16, the gospel manifests God's love for the entire world, which the following verses in John 3 prove includes those who do and those who don't believe. You can't get around that. John 3.18, right? Those who believe are not condemned. Those who do not believe are condemned already. Well, what are they believing and not believing? They're believing or not believing the love of God that's been manifested through the gospel. The love of God for the world that's been revealed through the Son. You either believe that or you don't. But it includes, that love includes both groups. John 5.34, Jesus says to the same people, he's later going to declare that they are not among his sheep. They are not among his chosen people. Nevertheless, here in John 5.34, he says, I say these things to you that you might be saved. And you add to this the fact that the Bible makes clear that God does not delight in or desire that the wicked would perish, but rather that they would turn and live. Right? Ezekiel 33.11, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his wicked way and live. Doesn't that sound like God wants everyone in the world to turn from their sin and be reconciled to him? This is Isaiah 45.22, right? Uh, turn to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved, for I am God and there is no other. And then it goes on to talk about the fact that every single human being is going to swear allegiance before God at his throne of judgment. What that tells us is that that call for all the world to come to God as the only one who can save them, that call is as expansive as is the group of people who are going to stand before him for judgment. They're going to be judged. I'm going to judge you for your sin. Therefore, turn, repent, and live. Come to me. Universal desire. And just to be clear about who all is included in that universal call, Acts 17.30 could not make it more plain. God overlooked the times of ignorance, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness through one man, having furnished proof to all by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. So it seems pretty clear to me anyway, that on some level, God has a desire that every man, woman, and child would turn from their sin and come to his son for salvation. Therefore, how can it be true that God desires everyone to be saved if at the same time he has not chosen sovereignly to save everyone? Everyone. 
Well, I'd like to start responding to that question by pointing out something. Are you guys with me? Yep, I'm here. I'm here. I'm, I don't feel all here. I feel like part of me is still on the road driving back. But as long as you're here and the Lord's here, that's all that really matters. I want to start responding to that question by pointing out simply that denying God's sovereignty and salvation does not solve the problem. If you say God wants everyone to be saved, therefore election cannot be true and God's sovereignty and salvation can't be true, that doesn't solve the problem. Why? Is everyone at the end of the day going to be saved? Even the most radical Arminian would admit that unless they're departing from orthodoxy. Universal salvation, universalism. Those who deny election agree that God has a desire for everyone to be saved, obviously. That's why they deny election. But even they must acknowledge that at the end of the day, not everyone is going to be saved. Now here's the question. If God wanted to save everyone, really, is He powerful enough to do that? He is powerful enough to do that. Even an Arminian will admit to that. So even those who deny election have to acknowledge that God chooses not to save everyone that He desires to save. For some reason. You understand that? You, get, you see where I'm going with that? Just denying God's sovereignty and election does not solve the problem because at the end of the day, not everyone's going to be saved. And if God is powerful enough, if He is mighty enough to save the entire race of humanity, then why doesn't He do it? Well, there are at least three options that we can choose from as I can see it in answer to that. Number one, God does desire that everyone would be saved, but He is not powerful enough to save everyone. Number two, God has exalted man's will above his own desires that they would be saved. Or three, God desires but chooses not to save everyone according to the wise counsel of his will. Let's examine those briefly. Number one. God desires, but he's not powerful enough. We know that's not true, right? Because just as an example, it's specifically in the context of men being saved that Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verses 26 through 27, that all things are possible with God. It's impossible for man to save himself. It's impossible for the rich to save themselves, to be saved, to be part of the kingdom. But nothing is impossible with God. God can save them then obviously number one is not an option. He desires people to be saved, but he's not powerful enough to save them. Number two, what about that one? That God exalts man's will above his own desire for them to be saved. Well, let me ask, would it be proper for God to exalt the will of a creature over his own? Wouldn't that make him subservient to the will of his creature? That is idolatry. God would be committing idolatry if he submitted himself to your will. 
Would it even be righteous for God Almighty to submit His will and His desires to the will of His creatures? Absolutely not, as we've said. Not only would that be utterly contrary to logic, that would be unrighteous, but it also goes against clear statements of Scripture. Right, so for example, Romans chapter 9, verse 16, salvation is not of him who wills or of him who runs, but it's only of God who shows mercy. Whose will is primary and ultimate there? God's will is, not man's will, because it's not of the one who, who wills. It's not of the one who runs. It's of God. Ultimately, it comes down to God. So number two can't be right. God does not submit his will to the will of his creatures. It must be number three, that God, as our creator, has a genuine desire that all of his image bearers would be saved, that they would experience salvation, which is why he does good to them. He sends rain upon them. He grants them food. He gives them joy and pleasure in their families and in their activities. God, God has a genuine desire that they would be saved. But for reasons known only to him, he has chosen to glorify the full range of his attributes by determining, according to his own will, not to save everyone. Boy, that, we are out of time today. I guess we're going to end on this. The question still remains, is it possible for God to have a true desire for something and not will to accomplish that desire. Is that possible for God? Well, let's answer that. First of all, he does will things to happen that he doesn't desire, right? So if we're asking if God can desire something that he doesn't will, let's reverse that. Does he will certain things that he doesn't desire? Yes, he does. Remember Genesis chapter 50, verse 20? Remember Joseph and his brothers? You meant evil in doing this, but God meant good. Not God used it for good, but God meant good through this. God, did, did God delight in what Joseph's brothers did to him? Did he take pleasure in that? Was it pleasing in God's sight for, him to, for them to conspire and to attempt to murder and then to kidnap and sell into slavery and then lie to his father about what had happened? Was that pleasing in God's sight? Absolutely not. But did God will for that to happen for some greater purpose? Yes, he did. So they're right there. He did not delight in something that he willed for an accomplishment of something greater. Or you think of Jesus himself, Acts 2.23. Did God delight in lawless men crucifying his beloved son? Absolutely not. But did he will for it to happen? Yes, he did. It was according to his foreknowledge and his predetermined purpose. So why did he do that? Because of a greater end that would result from ordaining that evil act, the salvation of his elect people. So if it's possible, now follow me here and we're done, okay? Actually, one more thing and then we're done. So if it's possible for God to will what he doesn't desire, is it not possible for him to desire what he does not will? Yes. Yes, it is. We would have to say yes. As our creator, God has a genuine and sincere desire that all of his creatures would come to the saving knowledge of the truth. But because of greater desires... 
For a greater good and a greater demonstration of His glory, He does not will to sovereignly bring all people to salvation. He desires it, but He does not will to sovereignly bring them to salvation. You know, rather than forcing what's left, we're just going to end there. We'll come back. Next week might be a short sermon, and you guys can delight in that. Um, Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are a patient and you are a merciful God. I thank you for the truths that we've considered today. Lord, I I know that this is heavy teaching going on and not so much application, not so much uh, of the proclamation of the glorious gospel that we delight in. But Lord, your gospel is present. The truths are here. And we're beholding the glorious wonders of what you have chosen to do in redeeming a people for your own possession. So Lord, please... Help us rejoice in that. I guess as we are going to finish up next week, um, help us come to a a settled conviction that we are among the elect. May your teaching give us grace and further in us the work of the gospel to the glory of your name and for our eternal good. We pray this in Jesus' name, Father. Amen. Now hear a benediction from 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself Give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Amen. 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 May you go in peace.